Today, we are going to begin a little mini-series that's a little different from how we normally do things, where we've been going straight through the book of 1 Corinthians throughout the fall semester. Today, we're going to take a little break, as we've done for the past few Christmases, and we are going to talk about the carols of Christmas. And you might be asking yourself, well, why are we going to do sermons on Christmas carols? And since you are asking this, I will tell you. Because we are hoping that as you sing these songs this year, this might give some fresh life to these songs. That it might give some, some deeper meaning and some deeper appreciation that when you hear these songs, uh, that no longer is it just kind of rote singing, but now you actually have the, a deeper theological background of understanding of, of what it is you are actually singing, and it would produce a deeper connection uh, between you and God. But that's not the only reason we're doing it. We're not just doing it for your benefit. We are also hoping that you will take what you've learned here and look for opportunities to share what you've learned with other people in your life, believers and non-believers alike. Because so many people during this season, they just sing these songs. They don't really think about what it is they are singing. But you will now have the opportunity when you hear Joy to the World played on the radio or played in your home or maybe even as you're walking through the mall because basically any, any restaurant, you are going to hear these songs played wherever you go. And it's an opportunity for you to say, hey, just the other day I was at church and the pastor said this about Joy to the World. Did you know that? And I'm not going to tell you what this is yet because I don't want to give away my whole sermon, okay? So... But, but you're going to be able to give some insight into this song and maybe offer some encouragement to those people in your life, your friends, your relatives, your associates, your neighbors, your coworkers, whoever it might be. And you can do this for believer and non-believer alike. For those of you who have, who have a one that we always encourage you to have and you're, you're praying for your one, this would be a great opportunity to share something with them about Jesus, about the Christmas season, and about a, probably about a carol they're already familiar with, whether they are a follower of Jesus or not. And as you probably already know, today we are going to kick this off with the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Uh, does anybody in here know who wrote Joy to the World? Not one person, one of the most famous Christmas carols, one person, I see one person pointing at somebody else saying this person knows, but that person won't raise their hand. Okay, I, I, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know either, right? Like I didn't know the guy's name, but the guy's name is Isaac Watts, and you can see a picture of old Isaac up here on the screen, supposedly. I gave, I gave them a picture to put, I did. Oh, they're calling the pastor a liar on Sunday morning. That is not good. We have not gotten off to a good start here this morning. Let's see if I can write this wrong. Anyway, Isaac probably looks like what you imagine he looks like. You know, one of those British guys with a long white wig, you know, and pale skin. That's what Isaac looks like. And so Isaac was born in 1674. He passed away in 1748. He was, uh, he was a Christian minister. He was a hymn writer. He was a a theologian. This guy is credited with writing 750 hymns, okay? Not only did he write 750 hymns, he wrote over 60 theological and philosophy books, okay? This guy was a magnificent producer of content. I mean, he spent his life 
writing. And I just want to tell you, you don't know this name. I didn't really know this name. But if you like singing in church, if music is your jam, you guys still say that? Is that or am I too old to say? It? Okay, if music is still your jam in church, then like you owe this guy an incredible debt of gratitude. Because in his day, they, they weren't arguing about what type of music should be played. They were arguing, should you even be singing in church at all? Now, how many of you, if we decided in January we weren't going to have any music in church for the next year, how many of you would still come to Aletheia Church? That's what I thought, right? Like three of you, okay? So there's three of you who are kind of like me, eh, music, right? But, you know, for a lot of you, like music is this deep heart connection. When you sing, when you hear music, it connects you to God. It connects you to the meaning of what you're seeing in a very deep and profound way. Now, I'll be honest, it's kind of silly why they were arguing about whether you should sing or not, but I do kind of get it because people in the church were saying, well, we, surely there are unbelievers in the church among us, and we don't want them heaping condemnation upon themselves by singing and confessing truth that they don't actually believe. So should we, in fact, have singing at all in our church? So thank goodness singing actually won out. But the, the thing that really bothered Isaac is that people were singing the living, breathing word of God in a very dull and boring and lifeless manner. For them, most singing was taking the Psalms or taking a portion of scripture and singing it out loud. But it didn't really have any melody. It, they basically just brought it right, you know, out of the Hebrew to English translation. It didn't rhyme. It didn't appeal to them in any way, shape, or form. They're like, hey, these are songs that we enjoy singing. And so after complaining about this for the umpteenth time, his father finally said to him, do something about it. Stop complaining and get to work and change it. And Isaac said, challenge accepted. And so that's when he decided to write 750 hymns. And one of his great projects was where we get our carol, Joy to the World, from, okay? And that was in a project that he did in 1719 where he went back to all the Psalms. And his project was called The Psalms of David Imitated in the Language of the New Testament. And so what he did was he went back and he looked at the 150 Psalms. And in between himself and the 150 Psalms, he decided to put the work of Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has brought about salvation on the earth, what if we looked at the Psalms and interpreted the Psalms in light of everything that Jesus did? So out of that, he writes 138 hymns. And the hymn, the, the hymn uh, that we get, which is Joy to the World, comes from Psalm 98. So we are going to look at Psalm 98 very briefly and look at the inspiration which gives us the song Joy to the World. And we're going to take it in three verse sections. So Psalm 98 up on the screen says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. 
All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So as we're looking at this psalm, just strictly from the psalmist himself, and there is no credit to whom actually wrote this psalm in the Old Testament, but the psalmist is sitting there and he is pondering the covenant faithfulness of God. He is pondering the steadfast love of God. He is pondering the hesed of God. If you were here for the, the sermon series in Ruth, I spent this whole sermon talking about the hesed of God, God's steadfast love that pursued his children. He is thinking about God bringing Abraham up and calling Abraham to be the blessing to the nations. He is thinking about God raising up Moses. He is thinking about the escape from the Egyptians. He is thinking about God getting them for the period of Judges to where now they sit around 1000 BC in the time of King David and the time of King Solomon where Israel is at the pinnacle of its power and he is just overwhelmed by the goodness and the graciousness of God and God's faithfulness to see his people through all the centuries, through all the mess they've created. When they keep running away, God keeps pursuing them. God has been faithful in every single step along the way and he's like, I can't help but sing out to the Lord a new song for all of these marvelous things that he has done in bringing about his covenant faithfulness to his people. But then he goes on in verses four, five, and six, and he says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So he says, hey, it is not just enough to sing with our voices. We need to get the band together, all right? Like, like we need to go and we need to find anyone who is halfway competent in playing an instrument. We need to call them all around and we need to write some music. We need to, we need to write a melody. We need to get everybody together and we're going to sing with our voices and we're going to play the instruments and we are going to make this beautiful music because we are so overwhelmed with God's covenant faithfulness toward us. But then you can tell, hey, he's thinking about this a little bit more. And he's like, I don't even think that's quite enough. Because look what he says. He says, Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's not enough just to sing. It's not enough just to get the instruments. It's time for the mountains to shout out. It's time for the deep, the valleys to sing in their deep, low voice. It's time for the elephants to get out and to make their trumpets sound and to stamp along the ground. It's time for the dogs to bark. It's time for the coyotes to howl. It's time for the lions to roar. It's time for the crickets to play their little violin legs and make this joyful noise to the Lord. All of creation should get into this when we are thinking about the covenant faithfulness of God, how he is faithful to his people and how he will do everything that he said so that he can redeem his people and be faithful to all of his promises. And it is in this vein that the psalmist writes Psalm 98. And it's from this that as Isaac was reading Psalm 98, he gets inspired to pen these lyrics Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven 
and heaven and nature sing. Now, before we dive into the four stanzas of this song, I want to take a moment to talk about something that is debated among Christians today. Many people would refer to this Christmas carol, Joy to the World, as the non-Christmas Christmas carol. You're like, what do you mean? We sing it every single Christmas, and it's only played from Thanksgiving Day until December the 25th. So how in the world could this be the non-Christmas Christmas carol? And it's because many people, when they, read, when they sing this song and they look at the words of this song, they say, this song doesn't have anything to do with the first advent. It only pertains to the second advent. And some of you may be going, Daniel, I don't even know what an advent is. And if you were like me for most of my life, I didn't know what an advent was either until I became a preacher and started preaching in the Christmas season. This word advent kept coming up. And I said, well, I better learn what it means. And it just means coming, right? So when we talk about Christmas, we are talking about the first advent, the first coming of Christ. So this season, we are celebrating the first advent. We are celebrating the fact that God the Son, who co-eternally existed alongside God the Father and God the Spirit at a time appointed by God the Father, one day was obedient to the calling of God the Father and took on flesh and was born in the little town of Bethlehem, all right? So born in the little town of Bethlehem, you know, little baby Jesus in the manger that we are all so familiar with. But he did it for a very specific reason. He came with a mission in mind to bring about the righteousness of God. We, we, we sum up the Christian life, very, we sum up the life of Jesus very simply by saying Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died. The Bible describes in great, t- in great detail the sin of humanity and how it has set itself at enmity with God and is now separated from God because of its sin. And Jesus comes to make this right. Jesus comes to restore what is broken. And Jesus lives a sinless life, which if you've never even thought about I would just encourage you to ponder at some point in time in your life. Like, how can you go sinless for 33 years? I have a hard time going 33 seconds. He did it for 33 years. And he's perfectly obedient to the Father, and he willingly goes to the cross on our behalf to make atonement for our sin, to to pay the penalty for our sin. Because wrongdoing, there must be a penalty paid for. A price must be paid. And Jesus pays that price on our behalf. And having paid the penalty upon the cross for our sin, He is buried, He is laid in the ground, and three days later He rises from the dead, proving that He has power over sin, death, and hell. And for 40 days after that, He teaches His disciples, and then He ascends into heaven. And right now, we exist between that time of Jesus' first advent and we are awaiting His second advent because the Bible declares to us that one day this Jesus who we saw go up into the sky will return the exact same way that His disciples saw Him go. 
And so right now we live in this already but not yet time frame, this, this time where, where, where we are awaiting the return of King Jesus. And so there are people who, when they read this carol, when they sing this carol, what they see within it is that it only pertains to the second advent. And I'm going to show you just briefly why before we walk through it in depth. So in the first stanza, they say, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. So they see that Jesus comes as king. They also would say that joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. They would say, see, look at this. This is, this is talking about when Jesus comes back and he is ruling and reigning over the earth. They would then say in stanza three, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow for as the curse is found. So they would say, hey, it is only in the full reversal of the curse we see in Genesis three that this song should be applied to. And then lastly, the last line says, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. So they see again, this ruling and full reign of Jesus. So I think if you were looking at this song, at face value, I think you could make an argument that it is only pertaining to the second coming. But I don't think you only have to make that argument. I think you can also look at it through the lens through which I look at it through. Uh, I talked to Pastor Kevin about it. He views it the same way. That generally the church has understood this, that this song pertains to the first coming of Jesus, the first advent, but it also moves through and toward and completes itself most fully with the second advent. So I think it has to do with the first advent and the second advent. And I just tell you this, because somewhere along your life, you know, some theological neat Nick is going to come up to you and go, oh, you know that song's not really about Christmas, right? And you shouldn't be singing it. And you can say, no, 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 no. I remember back in college or back in the day, back in 2021, my pastor, he talked about this and we are free to sing this with joy. So I'm going to sing it with joy at Christmas time. However, I think we should sing it beyond Christmas, right? I and mean, this is an incredible song that celebrates the work of Jesus from beginning to end. And I would encourage us, Josh Green, that maybe we sing this more than just at Christmas time if we want to be a theologically faithful church, but we'll just leave that on your head to, uh, to rest, okay? So, so, um, so let's walk back through this as we would see this as the first advent and the second advent. So Isaac, looking back at Psalm 98, you got to remember he's thinking about this and he is thinking about the first few lines where he says, sing a, a new song. He has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And I think it's that that really solidifies why this is about the first advent as well. Because if this is the inspiration, as he's looking back through this in the work of Jesus, we know that when Jesus came, Jesus was the revealing of God's righteousness to the nation, the revealing of God's righteousness to the peoples upon the earth. And this Jesus has worked salvation. Uh, this Jesus has worked salvation throughout the world. And Jesus came, he came as king. Now remember, the first time he comes, he comes as the lamb. In the first advent, he comes as the lamb. In the second advent, he comes as the lion. But even though there is a differentiation in how he comes between the first and the second advent, it does not make Jesus any less 
King Jesus. Jesus as the lamb is king. Jesus as the lion is king. And so this song calls us to receive King Jesus, to prepare our hearts for King Jesus. And so the question, one of the questions we're going to ponder this morning is, have you done that? Are you preparing your heart to receive Jesus during this season? Or are you just caught up in the hustle and bustle of the holiday season? The hustle and bustle of the end of the semester? I would just encourage you to be so intentional over the next several weeks to prepare your heart to celebrate on December the 25th what would be the true meaning of Christmas. Don't just go, oh yeah, I got to make a birthday cake for Jesus the night before, right? Like, don't do that way. Like, get ready for the party. Get ready for the celebration. Spend some intentional time thinking about what this season means to us as followers of Jesus. In the second verse, we see joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Now you might read this and you go, hey, I'm leaning a little bit more toward this should be an only a second Advent song because it says, joy to the world, the Savior reigns. And Daniel, when I look out into the world, like I don't know that I see a lot of reigning by King Jesus. It does not feel that in the midst of all the chaos and all the calamity and all the COVID and everything else going on in the world, it doesn't really seem like Jesus is reigning. But we need to know, in fact, that the Bible declares to us Jesus is, in fact, ruling and reigning over the universe. And one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, when I am feeling like the world is out of control, like my life is kind of spinning out of control, and, I don't, and I'm going, okay, God, where are you at in the midst of this? One of my favorite places to turn is to Hebrews chapter 2, verse Hey, I really like reading the whole thing through beginning in chapter 1. But if you look up here, it says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And they're talking about Jesus. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So when we look at the world... We look at it and we go, I, I, I don't see that everything is in subjection to King Jesus. But yet the Bible says and declares from beginning to end that God is completely in sovereign control of this planet, this galaxy, and all of the universes that exist in this world. All the time. Always. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it says that Jesus went and went to the right hand of the Father and sat down on His throne. Jesus is not up in heaven right now pacing, oh gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to help these people? How, am I get it? How, how, how are we going to figure this out? How are we going to solve this world's problem? No. He is not a fretting ruler trying to figure it out. The Bible says that He sits upon His throne ruling and reigning over 
the cosmos. And though it may, though we may not be able to see it fully, this is what the Bible declares. But also understand from one of our favorite Christmas passages, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 will give us a little more understanding to what this looks like for us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom." to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you need to understand that when Jesus came, and as we see him speak, in, uh, as, as Mark records for us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he said, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God has come. See, when Jesus came, he inaugurated his kingdom. But is that kingdom fully realized in the hearts of men and women and children around the earth? No. But of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Church, we, we have to recognize and realize that we, we, we live in a place, we live in a, in a world that at one point thinks we were this Christian nation, but yet now we are on this great decline away from the things of Jesus. And though that may be true, we should have a really long discussion about it. Um, though that may be true in some sense, we almost think, well, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. And that the government of Jesus is not increasing around the world. I mean, and this is the problem with us Americans, okay? We are just so self-centered and so self-focused on us and on our country that we just think everything else is going bad too when if you look around the world, there are things happening with the increase of the rule and reign of Jesus over the hearts of men and women and children around this world that we have never seen before in the history of the world. I mean, you go and read the history of China and how less than 50 years ago, there were less than 100,000 people who were believers in China. It is now projected in the next 10 to 20 years, China will become a Christian majority nation. Now, now just think about that for a moment. Over a billion people and over a course of 60 to 70 years from almost no Christians to over 500 million followers of Jesus the Communist Party will not be able to handle. They have done everything they could to stamp out the church in China. And it grows by 10,000 people per day. Jesus is ruling and reigning over the hearts of men. In Iraq, there have been more believers, more followers of Jesus in the last 20 years than in the previous 2,000 years combined. In Latin America, the Spirit of God is moving through the people. Just because here we may be experiencing what we think is the downfall of Christian uh, values and morals, around the world, 
Jesus is conquering the hearts of men and women and children. The Bible is true when it says of the increase of his government, there will be no end. For what is it that Jesus rules and reigns but the heart of men and women and children? Do not for a moment look at your social media news feed or wherever it is you get your information in the world and think that Jesus does not rule and reign over this world. Jesus rules and reigns over this country and over this little tiny speck of dust in all the cosmos. In stanza three, it says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. When we think about this, and you imagine Isaac writing, writing this and pinning these, pinning these words and thinking about what has taken place in his own life, that as one who was converted under the saving work of Jesus, he has now begun to experience the reverse of the curse, right? And when we talk about the curse, what we're talking about is Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, to when Adam, who is the one who is responsible for Eve to be tempted by the serpent, it was Adam who bears the greater sin. And God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Very simply said, if you want to know why very few things actually work in this world, it's because of the curse. If you want to know why your uh, presence may not arrive in according to uh, normal shipping times, it's because of the curse, right? The curse affects everything. It affects every area of our lives. But Isaac, when he, when he thought about this song, when he, when he thought about this psalm and he, and he penned these words, again, we're in this already, not yet. He, he, he knew that as a follower of Jesus, he had begun to experience this reverse of the curse. And, and certain sins in his life were starting to, to be taken out of his life. And things that he sinned, uh, where he sinned before, he found himself no longer sinning in that way. He never wanted, he didn't want to sin anymore. He wanted to walk in the ways of righteousness and in the ways of God. But yet he, he also recognized and knew that this wasn't fully complete. And though we have been declared free from our sin and we no longer have to choose sin, we can have power over our sin because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, this is not a full and yet completed thing. Again, it's, it's already taken place in one sense, but the full reality of it is not true. The, the kingdom is inaugurated, but it's not completely fulfilled. But yet, as we look at this, we in hope and joy, we can look forward to what the John describes in Revelation 21, 1-4, when we will truly 
see no more sin and no more sorrow because he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Church, do we not long for that day to where there will be no more pain, there will be no more sin. Like, I, Can you even imagine that? I mean, have you ever just thought and just tried to imagine your life and this world with absolutely no sin in it whatsoever? To be in a place where it's fully righteous all the time. Like, I, I sit down and I even try to imagine, and I just can't. Like, it just doesn't, like, I just hit a brick wall. I'm like, I just can't even fathom what that world is going to be like when all things are made new and the curse is no longer upon us in any way, shape, or form. That's why we should be full of hope and full of joy and full of singing because one day this curse will be reversed. And he goes on to say, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness. Here we have fully encompassed the second advent. The Bible tells us in John 1.14 that Jesus is full of truth and grace. Just in case you don't know, that the Greek word there for truth is aletheia, from which our church is named after. Jesus is full of truth and grace. And one day, the entire cosmos will be ruled and reigned by truth and grace. And as Isaac Watts ponders this, he concludes this song with the wonders of his love. The glories of his righteousness leading to the wonders of his love. This truth and grace. We can experience it now because we can experience Jesus. If you have Jesus dwelling inside of you, if the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, you have been given that seed of truth and grace and it's growing in your heart and in its life. But one day, like the parable of the mustard seed, it will be large and gigantic and it will be the biggest thing that dominates the world and the cosmos. And it is ruling and reigning and it is, it is growing in the lives of, of men and women and children around the world. And because of that, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should have joy. You should be experiencing joy right now. But, but the question that I want to now, as we make application about what I've talked about this morning, the, the question I want to ponder for a moment is, how is your joy? Like when you came in here this morning, what's your level of joy? If you think back over the last week of your life since Thanksgiving, how is your joy? What about the last month, the last year? 
Can you say your life is full and overflowing with joy? I know it's the end of the semester. Anybody got any uh, pressure from grades weighing down on them? Anybody? All right, like three of you are like, all right. How about uh, financial pressures? Anybody? Anybody? Student loan debt, you know, paying for Christmas gifts. One person in the back. They must have a girlfriend and now they're feeling that pressure. (laughs) So uh, some of you are going to have to go back to friends and family. You know, going back home. I know that can be a hard thing, go back home. And you, don't, you, you dread going back for the Christmas holiday. You probably have some daunting life circumstances in your life that you feel and, and are affecting your joy. And, I, and there are times in the midst of everything that's going on, because it could be a, you know, a physical health issue, it could be a mental health issue. I mean, whatever it is, there's so many problems and issues in the world today that, that, that it's just hard to find joy. We, we think that joy is outside of us. We, 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 we think we can't reach it. We think we can't grasp it. It's, it's beyond our reach. But I think if you're thinking that, then you're probably confusing joy with happiness. Now, not everybody agrees that those are two separate and distinct terms, um, but, but I do. I find it's helpful to separate joy from happiness and to think about them in, in different ways. When I think about happiness, I'm thinking about my circumstances. I'm thinking something about on the surface, right? So like when I am eating a really good bacon cheeseburger, totally happy, all right? And think about something for you that just makes you totally happy. And when I'm, you know, having to discipline my children, not very happy. Because the current circumstances mean there's chaos and calamity in my house. And uh, that doesn't make for a very happy time. But yet, whether it's good or whether it's bad, happiness and joy are different. Because I can have joy even when I'm not happy. Because though happiness is on the surface and it's directly related to my moment-by-moment present circumstance of what I'm doing in that moment, joy is something deep, right? And so if we, if we think about it like the ocean, right, that on the, on the top of the ocean, there can be these waves that are just going up and down and roaring, but yet underneath the surface, it's calm. And you're not feeling, you're not being tossed to and fro and back and forth. So I often think of happiness as the waves on top of the ocean. And they can be good and calm, or they can be frothing all around in a wild storm. But yet joy is something deeper than that, that I can have no matter what's going on in the surface. And as I was doing a little bit of reading and research on this this last week, I came across something that I felt was, felt was helpful from Compassion International blog. And they said, the true definition of joy goes beyond the limited explanation presented in a dictionary, a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. True joy is a limitless, life-defining, transformative reservoir waiting to be tapped into. It requires the utmost surrender and like love is a choice to be made. 
Joy is not simply a feeling that happens. Joy is also not great happiness or even extreme happiness. It is not elation, jubilation, or exhilaration. Emotions that may be present with joy, that may seem like an expression of joy, but which don't define joy. In its truest expression, joy transforms difficult times into blessing and turns heartache into gratitude. And I want to show you very practically where you can go to the Bible to have five verses that you can always go to to see an example of how you can pull joy, how you can rejoice even in the most daunting of circumstances. Look with me up on the screen at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And I want you to remember that when Paul pens this, um, he, he, he's in jail. He's being persecuted. The church itself is in the midst of incredible persecution from the world around, from the world around them. I mean, things are not easy for Paul or easy for the church in any way, shape, or form. And, and, and in the midst of that, Paul writes these five verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and joy does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I want to show you exactly what Paul does and says the church is doing so that they can rejoice and have joy in the midst of their circumstances. Number one, look at what he grounds joy in. He grounds it in the fact that they have been justified by faith, that they had now have peace with God through Jesus, okay? So when Paul is looking at himself in prison, in these difficult circumstances, the difficult circumstances of his people, he says, look, we need to look back to what has already taken place. Remember the already, but not yet. What's already taken place is that you have had all of your sins forgiven. Everything that you have ever done as an offense to God has been completely and totally forgiven. You are no longer at enmity with God. You are no longer striving against God. But now you have peace and you have been reconciled to God. And no matter what is going on in your life, surely, church, you can find joy and rejoice in the fact that you have been reconciled and redeemed by King Jesus. Not because of anything you did in any way, shape, or form, but simply because God has given you the gift of faith and by your faith and by your trusting in Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, believing that His work is enough to accomplish your salvation, you have been redeemed. And because of that, you can, and not only can you, but you should rejoice. And they find joy in their salvation. But not only, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just think about the already, but he also thinks about the not yet because he looks at it and he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. 
Why? How is it that we can rejoice in our trials and our sorrow and our suffering and our pain and our difficulty and the people we have to put up with, the pressures we have to deal with and the problems that we have in this life? And he says, because you know there is this sovereign King Jesus ruling and reigning over the entire cosmos, over the intimate details of your life, you know that this suffering is producing endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you can rejoice because you know that in some way, shape, or form, that thing that you don't understand, that you can't presently see right now, God is doing this to mold you and shape you and to form you more to looking like King Jesus. And in that, you can find joy because eventually you will see the fruit of what is happening in your life. And so Paul looks back to what's already been done, the justification, but also to the not yet of what God is producing in our hearts and our lives. And church, that, that is why no matter what season you're in, whether it's the Christmas season, whether it's the single season, whether it's the I can't find a job season, or I got a job I hate season, or I got a great marriage season, or this is not a great marriage season, or it's really hard to raise kids season, or I'm getting old and dying and my back hurts all the time, or I've got some disease season, whatever that season is, you can find joy. There is a deep reservoir available to us to have joy and to rejoice even when life seems overwhelming and difficult.